Imperial Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show Encounter, Adventure, Evangelize And now your host, Brooke Taylor Hello and welcome to the show Hello, hello, my name is Brooke Taylor This episode is brought to you by Select International Tours An industry leader in sacred travel Organizing pilgrimages since 1987 On today's show, all about the Latin Mass. And this is an episode that's really close to my heart because it's so personal. I take this conversation personally because it's a lived experience for me, particularly over the last year. But as you'll hear in my conversation, extending back about a dozen years when I attended my very first Latin Mass after having come back into the church a few years prior. And for anyone maybe in the last 20 years who's attended Latin Mass, I think it's a moment you don't forget. You know the first time that you ever went to a Latin Mass, it stays with you. And I know that in some circles and for some people, this is not a welcomed topic. Women wearing long skirts and head coverings makes it sound like a cult, I've heard people say. And so if you've listened to the show for a long time, and I, I hope you know my heart, to learn more about our faith, which in turn teaches us more about the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. And so every day I'm still learning, but my goal is to seek truth. And to quote St. Maximilian Kolbe, he said, no one in the world can change truth. What we can do and should do is to seek truth and to serve it when we have found it. So the purpose of this program is not to alienate anyone, it's not to cause conflict, but to serve truth. And we're really blessed to have a wonderful teacher, Father Joseph Tuscan, who you heard last week. He was our retreat master for Arise, and he was kind enough to join me for a conversation dedicated solely to teaching about the Latin Mass. And as you see with the length of this episode, there's a lot to cover. And so we'll get into that conversation in a minute. But the reason why this is personal is because our family does regularly attend Latin Mass, and here and there I have talked about that I attend Byzantine liturgy once a month, and since I've been doing that for a few years now, we actually decided to join the parish, and so I thought, okay, I'll just be bi-ritual. I am Eastern Catholic, and I'm Western Catholic now. A lot of that influenced by the years of going to the Holy Land, but you're really not supposed to do that. You can't really be bi-ritual. Priests can. They receive special canonical approval, but I discovered for, for Lady, it doesn't really work like that. Now keep in mind, the Byzantine Church is in communion with Rome, with the Holy See, so it's okay to receive Holy Communion. There was a really good description I found from a mom, Brittany Balky, who wrote about this in Catholic Mom, and I just wanted to share what she says about this. She says, the two spiritualities, while celebrating the same dogmatic and universally Catholic beliefs, approach those beliefs from two different angles that are not compatible to be practiced all together by one person or mismatched into some kind of Franken-spirituality. This is not only something I have come to learn in my own reasoning and experience, but through consultation with an experienced spiritual director as well. As a diehard cradle Roman Catholic, I understand how troubling everything I am saying here can be for some. The problem of not being able to be bi-ritual was troubling to me when I first encountered it, and committing to living to one spirituality consistently hasn't been easy. I've had to let go of most treasured uniquely Roman practices like Eucharistic adoration in order to live a spiritual life that was consistent with the Byzantine spirituality to which I felt called. I've had to adjust to living a radically different church calendar, but she 
said, this breaking has been fruitful beyond my imagination. If I could tell one thing to Romans who have discerned they're supposed to be Byzantine, it would be this. Do not be afraid to give up everything that is uniquely Roman Catholic in your spirituality to adopt Byzantine spirituality wholeheartedly. It's important to note, this does not mean as a Byzantine you can never attend Mass or Eucharistic adoration. What it does mean is that at times when you would normally go to Mass, go to Divine Liturgy instead. When you would usually spend an hour in adoration, maybe pray with an icon instead. When you would usually say the rosary, pray in Akathis to the Theotokos. If you have a choice between a Byzantine or a Roman option, choose Byzantine. Now that's again, if you are Byzantine Catholic, that's not if you're Roman Catholic. So just flip that, of course. If you're Roman Catholic, we enter into the power and the beauty of the Holy Rosary, which at the end of the interview, this is so important, even if you skip everything but go to the end, listen to what Father says about praying the rosary. She said, a few a few people might find themselves in situations where they must encounter both spiritualities on a regular basis. One of the most common examples of this would be a mixed marriage where one is Byzantine, the other is Roman. In order to fully support such situations, it is beneficial to seek a solid spiritual direction and possibly even a counselor. So that I thought was helpful because I certainly do not know everything. And one thing that I do know is I love our church. I love the church, the East and the West. And I have grown so much by falling in love with the beauty of the church. And I think a lot of people have had their world rocked over the last year with COVID. I've heard from a lot of people who have changed parishes. You'll hear Father Tuscan talk about how many people actually discovered Latin Mass for the first time ever because of COVID and the streaming liturgies that were available. So people would find the Latin Mass liturgies, learn more, fall in love. And when the churches were reopened, it's like the multiplication of the loaves and fish. All these people were flocking to the Latin parishes. So the reason I'm sharing all of this is this is all a little bit of my own story. And so I wanted to go into the journey behind that. Once a month, I still go to the Byzantine Church. Then we go to Latin Mass, and our boys also serve at our Norvis Ordo Parish. And so we go there, and particularly when they served, to support them and to pray with our parish community. And I'm so grateful more than ever before for the gift and ability to be able to freely worship. As you listen to this conversation, we pray, Holy Spirit, renew our church, renew our hearts for clarity, wisdom, reverence, and beauty, all of which you will hear in our conversation. Now, my interview with Father Joseph Tuscan. And before we even get started, Father is going to begin our conversation in prayer if you would join us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Joseph, pray for pray us. For, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. So, around 12 years ago at Santa Clara Monastery in Canton, Ohio, I had the wonderful opportunity of attending Holy Mass in the Extraordinary Forum, Solemn High Latin Mass, and the priest 
that was celebrating that Mass was Father Joseph Tuscan, never imagining a dozen years ago that he would be our retreat master for the Arise Retreat, celebrating Latin Mass for us. And I am so glad that it turned out that way. What an experience. And so on the last episode, you had a chance to hear on location the conversation with Father Tuscan, Linda Isaiah on retreat, talking about the entire weekend, what we experienced. We talked about peace and suffering. Father talked about freedom from the law, really beautiful teaching there. In this episode, I would like to do a part two about the Latin Mass, specifically zoning in on that topic because I feel like it needed its own theme to really do it justice. And so I'm very thankful that Father was able to fit this interview in between baptisms and missions and planting and funerals and so much more. Very busy schedule, but making time for us now. Welcome back, Father Tuscan. A joy to be with you. You know, for a lot of our attendees at the retreat, this was their very first experience with Latin Mass, and you were so kind enough to just kind of off the cuff do a teaching workshop. And even though I have studied the the TLM, we attend the Tridentine Mass semi-regularly, Father Pfeiffer there at Akron, I still feel like a total novice. There is always so much to learn, but it is undeniable that there is a revival of the extraordinary form of Latin Mass going on. So I guess that's the first question. Why? Why do we think that more people are being drawn into the Latin Mass? Uh, Three words, truth, goodness, beauty. Amen. There's a beautiful zeal there too. I think you gave the statistic that like 99% of Latin Mass goers are in church every holy day and that church participation among that group is most active. And young. I think the statistic was 97%. I I think if you Google it or do a search for Bridgeport, Connecticut, I forget the name of the priest, but he did a 10-year research project on the growth of the traditional Latin Mass uh, since the release of the document, the Motu Proprio Sumorum Pontificum in 2007 from Pope Benedict. And that's what he found. And a national statistic, I don't know internationally, but I can't imagine it's much different internationally. Anecdotally, I think from what I hear, it's sort of the same in Europe. But the Latin Mass apostolate parishes that are approved by the bishops and that around the country, they double in size every year in terms of congregation. And they're getting younger and younger every year. So I tell people the Latin Mass is youth ministry. Mm, Wow, that's really good. Well, you already answered the why. So the what is, we know Latin Mass, but the history behind it. I was blown away in your workshop. And so you shared a story, I never heard this before, that St. Francis of Assisi, your founder, actually kind of rescued the Latin Mass from the dust pile in the 13th century. Can you tell us about that? The Latin Mass that we know pre-Vatican II really has very strong ties to St. Francis. Right. Well, it's sort of, uh, that's sort of, of a, a easy, a fast way of saying it. But of course, even the Mass, the other forms were in Latin in the Middle Ages. With right. Alive. But the typical uh, form of Mass throughout most of the Middle Ages, in Europe anyway, was what was known as the Gallican Rite, which was a descendant of the Jerusalem style or rite of Mass that came from the Holy Land into Europe, got mixed with some traditions in what is now modern-day France or Gaul. And with those added customs became known as the Gallican Rite. And that was really the predominant form of Mass that most people in the West attended. 
But I, as I mentioned to the group, that this was new to me as well about the history of St. Francis. And it was introduced to me by uh, Monsignor Kevin Irwin, who was a professor of liturgy at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. for many years. And I attended a lecture, public lecture that he gave in 2009, where he explained the reasonableness of uh, allowing the traditional form of mass uh, into the church as, as, a, as a form by at, uh, saying that essentially the Catholic church has always been a big tent liturgically, so and, and east and west. So we know the, the oriental rites, uh, the, first of all, the Orthodox, and then those that are in union with Rome that we call Uniate or uh, Byzantine Catholics. There's over 21 different uh, rites and over 18 different languages in those rites that go back to the apostolic period. And then he explained that in the West, we also had even distinct rites in the West. Uh, Portugal, they have a rite called the Braga rite. In Spain, there's a Mozarabic rite. In, in Milan, Italy, you have the Ambrosian right, composed by St. Ambrose in the 4th century. Many religious orders had their own rites of mass, the Carmelites, the Carthusians, the Dominicans, among others, had their own uh, specific and distinct rites of mass. They were all Latin in the West, but they weren't Roman. Okay, And so uh, the, the predominant rite in the Middle Ages was this Gallican form, what we call typically now the traditional Latin mass or the Roman rite of mass was called in the Middle Ages the ancient Roman rite. But it had fallen from general use. It was preserved in some monasteries, among monastics, and in certain regions. And among those regions was where St. Francis of Assisi was from in Umbria. And so that would have been the form of mass that he was familiar with knowing that it was very ancient. And St. Francis, like our Lord had 12 apostles, in the beginning of our order, St. Francis had 12 followers. When he, when he asked Pope, and by the way, all this information was you know, discovered by me after a conversation with Monsignor Irwin, uh, when he indicated to me that the founder of my own order was really responsible for uh, repopularizing this older form that uh, had been become more obscure at the time of St. Francis in the 13th century. In fact, so much so that only the, po the Pope at, at the Lateran, of course the Vatican wasn't built at that time, he was at the Lateran Basilica, he only celebrated this particular form once a year, February 22nd, the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. And it was called also the, the Mass of St. Peter, believed to be that ancient in, in its primitive forms, whether it was Greek or Latin, that that particular form had gone back even to the apostolic period. St. Francis becoming aware of that, knowing of its ancient use, wanted this most primitive thing that went back to the, you know, our Lord and the apostles. And he asked to have that, this rite of mass that he was familiar with as the particular rite of our order. And it was already a known rite. So that, you know, it wasn't an invention. St. Francis didn't invent it. But uh, the Pope gave that permission. It's actually uh, mentioned in the third chapter of our rule that uh, the friars are to pray the office and pray the mass according to the ancient Roman rite. 
or the right of the Roman Church, as it says in the in the rule. Uh, the Pope gave Saint Francis the books that were necessary for the mass because it wasn't just one book; it was like four that you needed to say a mass. And but because of the expense of books, and we're the order was based on the vow of poverty. One of the most uh, fundamental characteristics of the order was the characteristic of poverty. So books were very expensive. And then also uh, the, the friars were travelers or mendicants, traveling preachers or traveling clergy. We weren't monastics in monasteries. So it was easier to travel with one book than with four. So a later uh, general of the order, Haimo of Fabersham, they condensed the books necessary. This also happened with the divine office. After uh, the Fourth Lateran Council and the liturgical call for renewal after that, they made a breviary, a single book that a priest or a religious could use in their hands to pray the divine office rather than these huge uh, choir books that you'd put in the, in the uh, chapel and everyone would read from the, the big book. I mean, it was, uh, they looked nice, but they were very difficult to use, etc. So uh, the breviary and then condensing the books into one book for mass. And that book was called the Missale Regulare, or the Missal of the uh, Order of the Friars Regular, okay? Friars Minor Regular. So some time passed, and uh, St. Bonaventure, who was a later general of our order, said to the Pope at the time that this Missal that the Franciscans had taken to the missions and up into Germany and all of this stuff was becoming very popular, not by papal decree, but because of the popularity of St. Francis, uh, the, uh, the, the efforts of the Franciscan missions. And so even secular clergy were starting to use it because it was more concise and it was easier because it was a single book. So even other priests were starting to use it. Pope at the time uh, tried to get the Roman priests to start using again the Roman rite at the time, but they, they refused. They, they wanted to stay with what they knew, the Gallican rite, but he made it the Curial Missal at the Lateran Basilica. And then a hundred years later, a Dominican uh, becomes Pope, Pope Pius V, who happened to be a Dominican. And of course, the Dominicans, when they were founded, they just adopted the rite of mass that was in use at the time of their founding which was the Gallican rite. Okay. So if you've ever been to a Dominican parish uh, and you see the Dominican rite of mass, that's basically what's left of the ancient medieval Gallican rite. And that Dominic is where, is that where the priest would open his arms like a cross during the consecration? Right. And it's not uh, just particular to them. Also, the Carmelites did that in their own rite of mass because that came from Jerusalem. Uh, to open your arms like that. There's another beautiful thing where in the solemn mass, in that particular rite, the priest uh, actually takes the host in one hand and he, he holds the host, the broken, the slain lamb, and does the lamb of God's fright holding the lamb. And then he says to the, after he does that, he says, the peace of Christ be with you, you know, the peace, of, uh, peace be with you, pox tecum. And so that he's as he's as he's standing at the altar, looking at the host, and he looks at the deacon. So it's clear where does this peace come from? It comes from the land, lamb slain. So they, it comes from Jesus, the peace. And then the, he gives it to the deacon. The deacon gives it to the subdeacon. The subdeacon to the others. So you know, in, in the new 
form mass, we just say the peace of the Lord be with you and with your spirit. But where is this peace? Well, I mean, obviously, we know it's from Jesus, but symbolically, ritually, it's much clearer in the in that in the old rite where the the peace proceeds from the host to the priest to the deacon, and it's clear this peace comes from Christ. That's, That's a, one of the things I do I do love about the Missal, because going to Latin Mass and following along in the Missal, you're privy to these profound mysteries that you see p- playing out in front of you that you might not be able to hear or know exactly, and there's so much to unpack there. But really, essentially, then what you're saying is the Franciscans created the Roman Missal that we would recognize today as the, as the Latin Mass Missal. Is that right? Correct, because what happened was it, it was called, as I said, the Missale Regulari, the Missal of our order, but they were using it in the Curia because it was that form was ancient to Rome. So when when the Council of Trent, and this is why that Mass is sometimes called the Tridentine Mass, okay, the Council of Trent did not compose a form of Mass, didn't invent that form of Mass, but that Missal was by Pope Pius the the fifth universalized the curial missile, which was our missile. He universalized the Missale Regulati for the whole church, and it became the Missale Romana. He he also made provision for any rite in the church that had at least two hundred years of history, meaning the Dominican rite. Okay. So, uh, among others, among others, including these rites I spoke about in Portugal and Spain and Milan and. The other religious orders that had ancient rites that uh, that you know so he allowed for those to be preserved as well so even even then there was allowed of this diversity so that but monsignor irwin's presentation his lecture which was excellent really i i would say that monsignor irwin was a traditionalist in in, in any colloquial sense of that word as other than in the in the, in the classic sense of the word yes but uh you know like he he would not be person who regularly celebrated the, the, the traditional Latin Mass, but he, he was defending the principle of its use again in the church and Pope Benedict's rationale. For it. So basically to say that, you know, the church has always had room, uh, you, and, and in fact, missiles have never been suppressed in the history of the church. I mean, once a, a Mass is left, you don't, the, the church has never suppressed a missile. But what happened was that after the Second Vatican Council, for all intents and purposes, in a way, it was. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it wasn't ever technically, but that was technically didn't mean much to the average Catholic because, you know, it was no longer allowed to be used. Uh, right. Of a distinction. And, and so that really then, before Vatican II, before pre-1962 changes, was what most of the world would have celebrated. And then we had this change. And so for my generation... Many were not learning Latin unless you go to a Catholic school, perhaps it's teaching Latin or you're homeschooled. Even I know my mom's generation, she was there when this change all happened. But for anyone beyond that, it's like they don't even know this is kind of a relic. And so maybe let's talk about some of the differences in Latin mass versus Norvis Ordo, the, the regular, the ordinary form, and which is what most people would know. So mm-hmm. ad orientum is one. You talked about that in your workshop, ad orientum which actually was not specified in Vatican II, that in Latin Mass, you see the priest facing the altar, facing the tabernacle, whereas if you would go to a church on a Sunday in a Catholic church in the West, you'd probably see the, the priest facing you, facing the congregation. So, talk a little bit about ad orientum, if you would. Every religious tradition 
that I'm aware of, at least major religious traditions in the world that aren't even Christian, when they pray as a group, as a, as a congregation, they're looking at the object of their worship. Muslims turn to the east because of Mecca and Medina, right? Uh, the Jews, when they, when they, in the synagogue, when they're giving their sermons, they're facing the congregation. When they're reading from the Torah, they're facing the sermon or they're facing the people. But when they say their prayers in Hebrew, they turn toward what they call their tabernacle, which, you know, looks just like ours, except that it has the scrolls, you know, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible in there. And they have like a sanctuary, like just like we have next to the Blessed Sacrament. They, theirs is the written word. We have the living flesh of God in our tabernacle. But they, when they say their prayers, they turn to their tabernacle, the Jews. Okay, and that's east because of the really the the seat of Moses, not just the temple, but specifically the seat of Moses. Looking at the thing that you're praying to or worshiping is just an instinctive, natural. Why would you do other than that, right? And that is preserved even in the Second Vatican Council makes no mention of what side of the altar the priest is on. If you look at the Vatican Basilica. Uh, the say, the apostolic altar above the t- above the tomb of Peter faces the nave of the church. Uh, it's seemingly, but no, it actually faces the traditional direction, the east. The basilica actually faces west. But when you put a crucifix on the altar, that becomes liturgical east. That, as Pope Benedict said in a, n- a number of different places, including uh, his book, beautiful book, Spirit of the Liturgy. That particular altar was unique. It's not a model for parish churches. It's above the tomb of the apostles so that pe- people could see the tomb and the successor above it. That was the whole purpose of that design. It's not supposed to be the colloquial design of a parish church, right? And even when, even before the Second Vatican Council, there's, there's YouTube video of Pope St. John Twenty-Third celebrating the Tridentine Mass out in the pla- out in the piazza, and that little that little uh, uh, roof uh, that's out there now that the Pope is under during Mass, it's the exact same uh, structure. It's I mean it's it, uh, that predated Vatican II that structure that's in the piazza, and the altar is exactly the same. You you'd see, and even the Trinitine Mass, John the Twenty, where is he standing? Uh, on the side of the altar that seems to be facing. The, the, the square or the people, but it's the Tridentine Mass. This is before Vatican II. And they just put in uh, one of the videos on YouTube, there's just like six little, seven little stubby candles on the edge of the altar. You, looking at it, you'd think it was the new Mass, but it was the Tridentine Mass. Why? Because it's looking to the east, the, the place where we anticipate our Lord will return at the end of time. For us, uh, the, the congregation faces the east, the horizon of the resurrection. The, pay, the place of the anticipated return of the Lord. And we're standing together, uh, both people and clergy. And that would tr- be true of any religious group. They, they're, whether they're clergy and they're faithful are together facing in the same direction. It's not that, I mean, you know, there's some colloquial things about priests saying after Vatican II, well, I'm no longer going to turn my back on. And I mean, the response of the average Catholic would be, gee, for 2,000 years, we didn't know you were disrespecting us by turning your back on us. We thought we were facing the same direction toward the Lord, right? Well, that brings up a good question, Father, because 
what happened? There's different hypotheses and musings about, well, if this wasn't stated as an explicit change at Orientum, why then did it change? How did that happen? Even before Vatican II, there were uh, uh, a bishop told me when he was a student in Rome, they always had rubrics for masses facing the nave, especially at the basilicas, and not just St. Peter's in Rome. Several of the basilicas, the major basilicas, have altars in that orientation. You know, they were there because of the tombs. They were set up that way. But there were always, it was always possible, to set, when you put a crucifix on the altar, that establishes liturgical ease. But what happened was, we, I think there was this effort to stylize the Mass in a way that was more Protestant in order to possibly, you know, encourage Protestant. Like if we, if we would style our liturgy a little bit more closer to what they were used to, that possibly this would reunite the church. You know, that if we did this uh, thing with our, the way we prayed, if we changed maybe a little bit the way we prayed to be a little bit more like them, because Luther didn't like the use of Latin, he didn't like a sacrificial language, so we toned all that down, and we just stylized things. And, 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 and I think that, you know, maybe there were some malicious people involved in that, but I think generally the hope was that this might possibly encourage a reunion of Christendom you know, encourage the, the separated brethren to come back to the church. In fact, that didn't happen. And what started really to happen, we started to lose in droves our own people. And the people that came back were, were, were largely intellectuals, as had always been, or people that had always typically converted for other reasons. But just changing the way that we did the Mass, I mean, even though it was hoped that that might encourage a reunion, obviously that didn't happen. During your talk, someone in our audience asked about the change of Eucharistic ministers in the Latin Mass would just be the priest who would administer Holy Communion, whereas Norvis Ordo in the ordinary form or regular Mass that we see, we have Eucharistic ministers that are trained, and you had a great answer to that, which I think might be surprising to a lot of people. Well, I mean, if you go to the Byzantine church, they don't have extraordinary ministers that are lay distributing communion. If you go to the Orthodox church, they all the same way. Lay, laity do not distribute the Holy Eucharist. Why is that for the Greeks? Uh, they've maintained the apostolic tradition that the reason that at the rite of ordination of a priest, the hands are consecrated is not, not, not so that the priest can magically bless rosaries and crucifixes and statues. The hands of the priest are blessed because they handle the Eucharist. And as I mentioned to the people that uh, in the old rite of Mass, when you had solemn Mass and you had priests who were also functioning as deacons, deacon, subdeacon, and you had a large congregation, sometimes they would, the deacon would separate from the priest for the distribution of Holy Communion to help speed up the, the process. He would distribute because, there, but if you had a deacon that was not a priest functioning as the deacon, he wouldn't because uh, the, the, in the rite of ordination of the deacon, the hands are not consecrated. The, the deacon, an actual deacon, not a priest functioning as a deacon, but uh, an actual deacon was in the old rite considered an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Okay, And so sometimes that could have been done, but typically it wasn't. If, if the deacon was not a priest, okay, but it's, it's about the consecration of hand. 
because why why would you consecrate hands for what other reason that's the reason as far as like and again i don't want to get into polemics and judge the church allows in the ordinary form for the use of extraordinary ministers i'm not going i'm not going to uh, subvert that that's allowed that's permitted in the ordinary form it's not it's not permitted in the extraordinary form because the the uh the because the rubrics and that's what was said that when the um when the extraordinary form was permitted for wider use it was said that you have to observe the rubrics that uh they go along with that right and of course, also the way we receive communion would be on the tongue always and only on the knees if you're able, which is why they would have communion rails. Most or many churches no longer have communion rails as well. Veiling. I want to ask about veiling. You go into a traditional church or in the extraordinary form and you will see not everyone, but many women who are veiling and of course, we're no longer required. Most do not now, but in the in the ordinary form. But in Latin Mass, many do, and it's not about submission. So I just want to make sure that that's important to say right away, but that we veil what is sacred. That's a quote that you shared. You reminded us, I wrote this down, woman is a walking tabernacle, whether or not they are carrying a species or not. And that just blew me away. What a noble invitation then to consider veiling. Right. Well, I mean, many women are doing that even in the ordinary form again. You know, in the old days, even men covered their heads. They took them, uh, the, the men took off their hats. I don't know if you remember in the old days, but a lot of the pews had these little, I remember my parish in Canton used to have, the, the pews used to have these little button clips that so men could put their hats on the backs of the pews right clip their hats in there uh and the priest wore even a hat a, a special kind of clerical hat called a beretta uh you may have seen when i came into the mass it was never our custom as franciscans to wear those but when i when i come in for the mass i have my amice up over my head i'm i'm covering my head yeah uh but when when i talk to god on behalf of the people i uncover my head out of i cover it out of humility going in but when i talk to god i uncover right so uh, it's not, in that sense, covering of the head is not just for women, but during the Mass, right, it, uh, it was always custom. In fact, St. Paul makes comment of that in, in his letters, but it isn't, as you said, a sign of submission. I mean, in fact, whether people are Christians or not, most women, as I said in Papua New Guinea, long before there was Christianity, women wore some kind of a, a veil over their head. They did. They did for all kinds of reasons. So that was not uncommon. Even um, Muslims do that as well. It's not uncommon. Their their sense of why women do that is different from ours. But as you said, as or as as I mentioned at the retreat, we veil the the sign of the blessed sacrament is in the tabernacle. It's not actually the candle that we sometimes put a neck the votive candle that we sometimes put next to the tabernacle because. Because the candle can actually go out sometimes. But the, the, the sign that the Blessed Sacrament is in the tabernacle, at least traditionally, was that it was veiled, was covered with a veil, which harkens back to the temple uh, in Jerusalem, right? And the curtain. And I, I could say something more about that with the use of the Latin language, that, you know, in the, you know, in the East, they have a wall across the sanctuary. You can't even see the priest. Not only is he facing East, but there's a wall you can't even see the priest back there, right? 
that comes from the temple. There was a curtain in the temple over the Holy of Holies. And uh, east and west, that meant that what maintained tradition was maintained. In the west, it was actually a curtain in the early days. But when Latin was no longer the spoken language, the Latin language provided the veil over over the holy mysteries. Right, so you didn't need the physical curtain anymore in the west because in the east they they still had the tradition of using a vernacular. They'll maybe use some ancient apostolic languages as well, but they also would sometimes use vernacular in the Byzantine church. They keep the wall. The veil indicates the Holy of Holies. It indicates the tabernacle. And even the chalice is veiled because of its sacred nature. And in fact, the, the saboria, chibo, as I mentioned in Latin, is the word for food. And we put it in a gold vessel, not to make it look precious, but because gold it, it reminds us of the resurrection, right? The sun. And so you put in, the, in the, the sunny vessel food that is of the resurrection, because when we receive Holy Communion in Mass, at that point, we don't receive the executed body of our Lord. We receive the resurrected body of Jesus. So it's placed in the golden chiborium, so the resurrected food, and that, that, that instrument is veiled because it contains the Holy Body of the Lord and blood, body and blood of the Lord. And then at communion, it's unveiled, and the, and the priest shows this chiborium to the people and says, Ecce agnus dei, ecce quitolit peccata mundi, behold the Lamb of God, him who takes away the sins of the world. And then uh, he distributes the Holy Communion. So yes, the veil, whether it's on a person or on a sacred vessel, is an indication of something that is holy. You also said that we don't want to focus on externalism. So the focus isn't on veiling or necessarily, again, the outward or, or the incense, but the sense of the sacred, as you're describing, the richness of the symbolism, there's no question that it elevates us to heaven. This is also why we have the beautiful stained glass and the cathedrals. It's not about showing off. It's not about trying to look holy by wearing a veil. It's truly understanding and respecting and entering in with reverence the reason why. The evidence points to the fruits of that, I think, by what you said in terms of the attendance and how widely popular Latin Mass is becoming again. Right. Well, I mean, here I live in Pittsburgh, and Bishop Zubik very graciously brought the priests of the Institute of Christ the King into the diocese, uh, I think two or three years ago, two or three, I think it was three years ago now. And uh, he gave there, gave them an old church and a you know, uh, sort of a rundown part of the, the city, but uh, on the north side of the city, it's now called Most Precious Blood of Jesus. And they've beautifully restored this building, the congregation there. And again, their congregation has, is booming, huge congregation. They've had to add co a consecutive uh, mass at uh, 9.30 in the morning because of so many people. And most of these people are young. They're in their 20s and 30s. And so the people coming to the Mass are going out to their uh, secular and even Protestant peers and saying, oh, my gosh, you got to come see this thing. It's so beautiful, you know, and the, and the people, the priests are young also, and they're, they're just saying Mass in Latin and preaching these very doctrinal sermons that, that you know, you think, well, who, would, who the heck would be attracted to that? And yet they're, they're, the congregation themselves are bringing 
their own contemporaries into the church. They are the evangelizers. They're bringing the people in, and the priests are taking it from there. And they're staying, and they multiply. So obviously, it's very pastoral in the sense that it's definitely bringing people to Jesus, and they're doing a very effective job. I'd like to say one thing. You you mentioned in your, you read a beautiful passage, and I, I think it was from Pope Benedict during the retreat about silence. Was it from Pope Benedict? I think it was Cardinal Seurat. Oh, Cardinal Seurat. That's right. Yes. Yeah, he wrote a beautiful book on silence. And you read a passage that was so excellent. This has to do with active participation, a phrase that was not invented by the Second Vatican Council. It was first enunciated by Pope Pius X, okay, a hundred years before. Obviously, you know, it, it didn't have the sense of what we thought it in that time. It didn't have the sense of what we think it means today, perhaps. But I would say this about the Mass. The Mass is essentially a prayer, right? Uh, What is prayer? Prayer is the lifting of the mind and the heart to God. Sometimes we sing when we pray. Sometimes we speak. Sometimes we kneel, stand, other gestures. But all those things are externals. This is where your point that you were making before. And to reduce active participation to simply the externals of praying, is to miss the point that the essential participation in divine liturgy, divine worship, is the lifting of one's mind and heart to God. If the, if the, if the externals start to become a distraction, then they're self-defeating. But what, what's happening is by osmosis, young people who, some of them, had no exposure even to Christianity, are stumbling into the Latin Mass, and they're, they're finding an experience of divine worship that is transforming and attractive, and to them, new. It's not nostalgic. It's that, you know, these young people that are filling these, these Latin mass parishes have, as you said, they have no memory of this, uh, these, old, these polemics that came from 50 years ago. For them, it's just beautiful, and it's uh, reverent, and that is attracting them, and uh, they're filling up. That being said, I think we, and you did such a beautiful job of explaining in charity this in your workshop. We have to be so careful not to go extremist in either direction. Those in the, the tradie world, the traditionalist world, know that there there are some that are schismatic. That's just a fact. They don't acknowledge right. any pope after Vatican II as being valid. And so for someone who's new, because a lot of the ladies at our retreat, this was their first Latin mass experience and they said okay i need to go find a latin mass parish you also have to be careful too because you can go too far into this territory where it does flirt with schism and maybe you can help us how do we find that balance because we know most of the priests that i know have laid down their life have given i mean all i don't want to say most all of course but i what i mean by that is they're they're celebrating mass as as i've always grown up and and I don't want them to feel bad that I think that it's less beautiful, of course. But this is an opportunity, I think, also to understand what's happening throughout the world, why the Latin Mass is growing, but also how we have to be careful. Right. I was just listening to, uh, uh, watching a wonderful video of a, of a convert to the Catholic Church named Michael Lofton. I don't know if you know that name, but he's been on the journey home with Marcus Grodi and different programs. And it was interesting. He talked about his conversion from, it was an intellectual conversion, like Newman and like Chesterton. He just, he was a very committed, in fact, he was anticipating being a Protestant pastor. 
but he recognized the truth of the Catholic Church, and he became a Catholic. He, he actually then went off deep end for a bit and went into orthodoxy. And then he, he realized that all the problems over there, and he came back to the Catholic Church. And he loves the Latin Mass, in fact, loves the, the Oriental liturgy still. But where he lives, he has no access to it. There's no, the, the nearest uh, Latin Mass available is eight-hour drive away. You know, he, he would love to go. And there's a lot of Catholics that are sort of in that position that it's not even reasonably convenient. There's, they're, they're, they have multiplied, and there's many, many more of them. But not everybody is within a reasonable distance of, uh, of a Latin Mass to even go uh, that would want to go. So he, he tends, you know, he said he would love to have it available, but, he, you know, he's not going to leave the Catholic Church over the form of the Mass. He made too much of a journey. And for him, here's what it came down to. As he read the ancient church fathers as an evangelical Protestant, the phrase that stuck with him is this, where Peter is, there is the church. Where Peter is, there is the church. That is the Pope and the bishops in union with the Pope, right? And so any priest or bishop that's not in union with the actual Pope, the see of Rome, and the, if, the, if the chapel is not in an actual union with the see of Rome by one of the approved masses that uh, approved by the bishop that's uh, permitted to the faithful, then you don't want to go to that, right? right? You know, there's the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King. There are others. Those are the two biggest groups. But many, many diocesan and religious priests, as you know, up in Cleveland, the Benedictines and many diocesan priests that are just part of the diocese are doing the traditional uh, or the extraordinary form. And so these masses are multiplying, I would say, easily at least half. I, would, I think that's conservative. I would say more than half of the priests. That some dioceses, I know, more than I, more than fifty percent of the priests ordained in the last ten years celebrate both forms because the seminarians have known all these years since Samoran's pontificum that it was permitted. So for them, it's just like professional competency. You know, if you're if you're going to go into computers and you say, "Well, I'll work on PC, but I won't work on Mac." You know, okay, that's a good explanation. Yeah. yeah. Many of the diocesan clergy, for them, it's just professional competency that it's a form of the mass that's permitted. Many people want it because of that freedom that the church has given to it. You know, now there, there are people who fight it in sort of different ways. I don't know why. You know, honestly, having people that are devout and dedicated to the church, I don't know why you would discourage such a thing. I do understand sometimes the dynamic that people can become cynical toward the mainstream of the church or the uh, Novus Ordo or the ordinary form of the Mass. But the thing is, as Michael Lofton pointed out, you know, he, he goes to the Novus Ordo most of the time. It's a reverent Novus Ordo by a good, solid priest with good Orthodox preaching and all of that. So, you know, he's, he's satisfied with that. That's all that's available to him right now. Amen. And we had a great exchange with St. John Birchman's Altar Server Society. They train servers for Latin Mass, which is no small feat. Ray, the contact there, said what's happening is these young men are going into their home parishes and saying, hey, 
What do you think about putting on a Latin mass once a year? And so what a beautiful renewal to see coming from the young men. He mentioned one parish in particular in Cleveland that did that and had a standing room only turnout. So that's a beautiful way to create revival right where we are as well. Oh, absolutely. When when Simorum Pontificum came out, I was the assistant priest at our largest suburban parish in Pennsylvania, a parish of 8,000 people, you know, 600 kids in religious ed, 400 kids in the school, 120 baptisms a year. And I was there when I came, uh, the permission came for the Latin Mass, and there was a group of people in the parish that wanted it. So I asked the pastor, my bishop, my superior, and I got, that's when I got trained. And I started offering it in the parish. And the pastor, honestly, was a little skeptical about it. But we were coming up on the 100th anniversary of the parish. And this is a very modern church. So it's sort of amphitheater style and, you know, church in the round kind of thing. Very modern sort of looking building. And uh, not the place you'd expect to see a Latin mess, that's for sure. But we, the parish was coming up on its 100th anniversary. So I asked the pastor if I could, you know, uh, do that the anniversary uh, week. Not, not, yeah, you know, replace the parish mass for the actual anniversary, but it was Christmas. Midnight mass was the actual start of the parish. So the, the, the Sunday within the octave of Christmas, I asked him, and he said, fine. So we replaced the, this regular Sunday mass, Novus Ordo mass, with the extraordinary form, and we did a solemn high mass. The church seats about 900 people, and honestly, it was standing room. Uh, the men in the parish sang for it. Uh, we trained uh, the kids to serve. I had seminarians and a, and a priest from the diocese help me as the deacon and a seminarian as the subdeacon. It was a beautiful event. In fact, the people were so delighted with it. You know, it's funny, you know, this doesn't typically happen at a Latin mass. But as we're processing out of the church, they started applauding. We had a standing ovation. And that's how we <laughs> felt on Sunday. As we were as, <laughs> as we were leaving the church, and the, the pastor was flabbergasted. He couldn't believe the people liked it. And uh, he, he let me do it probably half a dozen times, you know, in there. But I honestly, it can be done in such a way that it doesn't alienate people or alienate the mainstream parishes and things like that. And in fact, can be a beautiful introduction to uh, the tradition. And as, as that mass we did a dozen years ago at Santa Clara, I mean, that was the, I think that was the first time there had been, well, I, I, I think I did a low mass there, but uh, certainly that was the first time there had been a solemn mass at the monastery, you know, since before the Second Vatican Council, for sure. And again, you know, as you saw, it was a, it was a standing room crowd very well received. So, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a source of division or polemics or alienation. In fact, I was with the Fraternity of St. Peter for Holy Week and uh, down in Texas. And uh, one of their priests, that's what he said to me was, you know, they they're rich. Some of their original members had been members of the group of society, St. Pius X. And when Archbishop Lefebvre illicitly ordained uh, bishops, uh, in defiance of Roman provision, the papal provision, in 1988, some of them said, well, that's too far. And they asked Cardinal Ratzinger at the time if there could be some provision for them within the church, and that's, what, that's how their, their community was established. They're an act of obedience to the Pope, right? And they were said, you, we'll make provision for you on the condition that you don't engage in polemics, division, 
division. And that's their, that's their mandate. They're, the fruit of their obedience is, is clear. They're apostles. These are, these are some, of, um, some of the most dedicated, holy priests that I've, uh, I've met. That's FSSP. So FSSP.com is the website. You can also do a search because they have a parish locator. If there's a map in that way, you know, okay, I am in a good spot that is in communion with the Holy See. And that's important. But you referenced being them with, uh, with them for Holy Week. Didn't you say there were a few thousand for the Easter Vigil? Yeah, the, the parish that I was with with them in Irving, Texas, the modern day parish in Irving, is the first apostolate of the fraternity in North America. It started at the chapel of Carmelite nuns years and years ago. And uh, in fact, Pope Benedict, at that time, Cardinal Ratzinger, personally intervened with the Bishop of Dallas to, to establish, allow an establishment of their uh, fraternity in the United States. And that was the first one. So it's their, it's their oldest apostolate in the U.S. and it's their largest apostolate now in the U.S. And of course, during COVID, they were under a lot of the restrictions and last year, you know, everything was live streamed, you know, all their Holy Week services. But this year, they had to set up a circus tent on the property because of all the people. And, you know, of course, you only do the one uh, service. You don't uh, have multiple Easter vigils or multiple Holy Thursday uh, for the tree to them. So they, they did a, a rough count, a conservative estimate, they said, was 2,000 people on the weekend for Easter Mass. It was a record for the parish, I think. And, you know, of, of children and older people and many young people. And, uh, you know, just, just just flooding out of the tent, in fact. There were so many people. And they're a very culturally diverse parish, too, because they have Hispanics from different countries, Africans from different countries, French-speaking and English-speaking Africans from Africa. They have African-Americans there. There's Asians from different countries in the parish and all different kinds of economic, social class and status. And it's, a, it's an incredibly uh, rich, diverse parish. And that's the beauty. You know, Latin isn't the whole point of Latin isn't just to be nostalgic or traditional. Latin, in its classic sense, was just that it was neutral. It was neutral. Because in the Catholic, in the Roman side of the church, in the Eastern church, the, 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 the Oriental rites were mostly regional or ethnic. And so that's why vernacular was common in their liturgy. But in the, Rome, in the Western side, we've always had a plethora of uh, vernacular languages. So Latin was, an, was uh, something that we could all use together, regardless of our language, our background, our ethnic group whatever it is that we could pray together, that we didn't have, to have a parish that celebrated mass in four different languages. We have a parish like that in Washington, D.C. There's mass in four different languages, Hispanic, Haitian, mm-hmm. Vietnamese, and uh, French, Creole, Haitian. And uh, we do the Spanish and English, but a, a priest comes in for the Vietnamese and for the Haitian and say, well, it's a culturally diverse place. No, I mean, it's, it's four different countries under the same roof competing for space. I mean, they have separate parish councils. They, have, they, they don't talk to each other because they can't, and they can't pray together because they don't use the same language. You know, the same thing, like I said, we had in Papua New Guinea, where in our diocese there, there's 80 vernacular languages in the diocese. And because these so, are all local dialects? 
they're all local dialects and and even distinct languages and so and there's 80 of them in the diet there's 800 in the country you know so the the missionary bishops like the, the bishops from africa and from oceana that were at vatican too and they they started hearing about vernacular the story i heard was the Afri- african said well oh that's wonderful wonderful so you want to pray in german or italian or french wonderful and they said oh no that's for everybody he goes oh us right he goes i have 12 languages in my diocese which one do i pick and who do i exclude so the other uh, thing with the vernacular is that uh, recently there was a there was a, a exclusion they wanted to exclude private masses in the vatican you may have heard about that because many of the many priests would come in the mornings uh, to, to have masses for their various groups early in the morning in the vatican before the tourists uh, were allowed in uh, they, they put a stop to that, all these individual masses on the altars. And sometimes priests would celebrate alone. And many of the Roman curial officials were celebrating the Tridentine mass every morning. And that I think that was driving some people crazy. So they, they stopped that. They said, no, we're going to be Vatican II. And everybody will attend a common liturgy and, you know, where they have lectors and all this kind of stuff. Well, I don't know if you heard, but they recently rescinded that exclusion. They changed that back because... Those masses, those common masses, were in Italian. You know, okay. I, I mean, I, I'm Italian American, but but the Italian's not my vernacular. Right. Why do the Africans and the Asians and the Oce- people from Oceania? Why do they have to participate in a mass that's not, Vatican II said vernacular? It's not their vernacular. You know, they bring their priest on a pilgrimage to 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 Rome. Why do they have to go and and somebody else's vernacular. The point of the Vatican Council mm-hmm. was that you can have in your vernacular, right? That's right. So they realized that was absurd. Even when John Paul II, even the Nova Sordo Mass was done in Latin, when you had to, out in St. Peter's Square, uh, because people are from every different kind of country. And the, the problem with Italian is that it's very provincial and it can become kind of political. You right. know, why are you using this, this, this uh, very provincial language for the universal church. I mean, we, we don't belong to the Italian Catholic Church. We belong, belong to the Roman Catholic Church. That includes Poles and Africans and Indians and people from Oceania and everywhere, and the Hispanics, people from different parts of the world. That's all of us. It's universal. And, and Vatican do Vatican II preserved the use of Latin. So we know that that's oh, still yeah. very important. Well, right. And even the Novus Ordo Mass can still be, and there's never been a need for permission to celebrate the new Mass in Latin. That was considered normative, right? And and uh, typically in uh, a big celebrations for the church, the, 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 the family language is still used and, and was until more recently. Pope Francis has kind of had the, has the preference of using Italian but again, you know, that's not a universal language. Right. A, I'm glad that he speaks it, but that does, that language doesn't belong to everyone. It just belongs to, he says, well, I'm the Bishop of Rome. Well, you know, the church is bigger than the Diocese of Rome. And, and Peter's presence has to be for all of us. So the Latin was always done for papal liturgies just to include everybody because it's neutral. It's a neutral language. You know, before the Second Vatican Council, if you're having solemn mass internationally, you could have a priest on the altar who maybe was from Italy and one from Africa and one from Poland. And 
you know, maybe they couldn't even have a conversation in the sacristy before the mass, but when they went onto the altar, they knew how to pray together. Yes. Right. And so the whole point of that language is not about nostalgia or or the fact that you have to be even be competent in the language to attend it. No, even priests, many most priests are not Latin, experts in Latin. Right. I mean, when I was a missionary, I was mandated by my bishop to celebrate mass in West Kewa, a language that I did not speak. So for my first four years as a priest, I celebrated mass not knowing a word of what I was saying language spoken by about 30,000 people up in the mountains of the Southern Highlands province, one of 80 languages in that diocese. The bishop asked us to celebrate in, in that language for the, for the people, right? So, okay. But so language is a tool, you know, having, having, I mean, I worked on it to, I, you know, understood it by, by the time I was leaving after four years, I understood a good, a fair bit of it. But, you know, that didn't make my early masses or even the later ones that I didn't understand every single word or phrase exactly. That doesn't mean I didn't know what was going on at mass. Right. We're out of time, which is such a bummer. I just hope that this conversation sparks a curiosity, a holy curiosity for people maybe to pilgrimage to a Latin mass if they have not yet, or at least take a look at researching more, just the beauty of what we can learn from that experience. And thank you so much for this time today. I have about two pages of additional (laughs) notes that I took, and I know we're in a time right now. You and I, we talked a little bit about what's going on in Germany and break there. I don't want to use the word schism, but Bree Dale, who is a correspondent in Rome for LifeSite News and for OAN and others, she said they're very close to that. She covers as a journalist this worldwide news. So there's always so much to pray for in our church. It hasn't been formalized yet, but I also want to say that, you know, you can physically find uh, a Latin Mass parish, but, you know, many of the Latin mass parishes are live streaming their liturgies. And what was happening was when people had to go to live stream during COVID, many of them were finding these Latin mass parishes and then they showed up later when the churches opened up. Well, because a lot of them opened up early. Oh, oh, absolutely. Let me, and, and the other thing was you could, because you, you have to receive on the tongue, uh, on the tongue at the Latin mass. And so my dear friend, Father James Miara at Holy Innocence in at Manhattan in New York. I've been there several times to help him. He said since COVID, their, their attendance and collection has tripled because people that wanted to receive on the tongue in New York, that was the only place they could go. And also, you know, they, they didn't come perhaps, you know, intending to you know, be permanent with the Latin Mass, but they fell in love with it. And they're staying. And so these were just, you know, mainstream Nova Sordo Catholics who just had the tradition themselves of going, receiving communion on the tongue and most kneeling if they could. So they were coming over to Father Miara's parish and, and the place is just booming over there. Well, There's in a what? time where, where overall church attendance is down, that is so hopeful. That's so encouraging to hear and to see, and I'm sure for you, edifying to your heart as well. It's incredible. I mean, nationally, mass attendance for the mainstream of the church is 12%. And I work uh, also with Fellowship of Catholic University students. Our friars, especially Father John Lager from our Mid-America province in Kansas, has been the national spiritual director for years. But we have a statistic with folks that we lose 80% of our young people before the age of 23 in the United States. And it's, the statistic is almost reverse of that in the ordinary, extraordinary form parish. 
I'm going to link up to some books because I know for our own family, it's been really helpful. There are some wonderful, beautiful, I need to mention that too, what goes hand in hand with the Latin Mass are the most exquisite reading materials, books, things that have kind of been lost and I think are resurfacing again. And that does include material for young adults of understanding the beauty of Holy Communion and kneeling and the prayers of the Latin Mass, whether it's a children's missal or some of the more modern day books with absolutely gorgeous illustrations. And we talk about this on the program all the time, introducing our kids to beautiful literature and art and music and captivating them because the world cannot compete with that. So this is such hopeful medicine for, I know, a mother's heart, but for everybody. So thank you so much. You know, we mentioned on the retreat that uh, Sophia Institute is producing now a version of the Magnificat that, you know, people are used to for the main, it's called Benedictus. It's just now going into publication, but it's a a daily, it looks just like the Magnificat, but it's for the the traditional Latin mass. And it it has the reading for every day and has a little uh, homily or sermon reflection for every day and some other beautiful things about, um, about the elements of the mass and how the priest vests and what the symbols of different things are. Thank you. And I will link that up too. I actually have one and they begin, this is a great time to be sharing that because I I think they're going to roll that out uh, in the next few months. We had the test copy, which was wonderful. So how can we pray for you? How can we support you? Oh, pray for me, please. Just, I would just encourage all of our listeners or anybody watching one thing, pray the rosary every day. Pray the rosary every day. I mean, the queen of heaven, when she, when she appeared on earth and in the apparitions that our, that our church has approved of, she only asked for one thing for us to do. Sometimes she'd ask for a chapel to be built here or there or something like that. But the main thing that she asked people to do was to pray the rosary every day. And this is the queen of heaven, the mother of God. If she's making the effort to appear, and she has a simple request. It must be important. So, I mean, so many people have stopped praying the daily rosary. Please pray, pray the rosary every day and maybe offer one for me. I'd be grateful. I'll tell you what, and I've shared this on the show too, Pope St. Well, Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II taught me the rosary in Latin. I had a one-hour commute to do the morning show every day. And when I first came back, I had this out-of-nowhere call to learn the rosary in Latin. Now, this was probably 15 years ago, and it took a long time because I had to learn it by sound every day driving. And he says it so fast because he knows it so well. Ave Maria, gracia plena. And I had, it took me so long. But once you learn it, it's in your brain forever. Our family has learned it, and we learned our dinner prayer in Latin. And it's, it's such a beautiful gift to carry with you always. So I would recommend that because that, you've got the Latin and the rosary. That oh, is a power pack tool for sure. <laughs> so thank you and amen. 
You're most welcome, bro. Thank you, thank you again to Father Joseph Tuscan. We've had a segment on the show where it's Padre in your pocket with my friend, Father Nathan Cromley, and he has been so busy with the community of St. John and all that he's doing that I haven't had a chance to get him on lately for a Padre in your pocket where we could just, if we had any question, take him out like an Obi-Wan Kenobi hologram and ask him something and have him be able to impart these beautiful words. I definitely think Father Tuscan made up for lost time. I need to think of a name for that friar in your what? Friar in your face, friar. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have to work on a, a name, but that was so fantastic. We'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts, any input, thebrooktaylorshow at gmail.com. Of course, you know, we can also connect if you're on social media. If you have not signed up for my newsletter, please do that. You can just click in the show notes for that information, but your input is so important. And thank you. And if this episode blessed you in some way, you think it's thought provoking, please share it. We see it every day where truth is being suppressed and things aren't getting out there. So when we do hear it, more than ever, I am sharing and spreading the word. And so if you find something in this episode that quickens your heart, you know that it's true, please pass it along and share with others. God bless you, friends. A big thank you to my producer, Mark Cumming, for his dynamic skills and quick work. Mark is a producer extraordinaire. So for any audiovisual needs you may have, check him out at cominghomestudio.com. Until next time, friends, God bless you. Peace and love and say your rosary. God bless you.